make you be better than you were. But I will say, if you think about your friends in that way, probably the first thing it would lead you to do is to recognize those friends who don't do that, right? Where the friendship is not bad if it's just around like hanging out, watching the game, but you, all of us know which of our friends are actually making us better people. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans, and we have a very special guest on today. He he wrote the whole PayPal Mafia story. He's an award-winning author. His latest book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. He was a bestseller as the earned praise from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Economist, among many others. He has been featured in numerous publications and large podcasts talking about this amazing book. We're going to be describing some incredible stuff about the culture, about what we what he learned throughout the structure of it, and obviously being able to interview 200 plus interviews developing this podcast and this book. Please welcome my guest, the one and only Jimmy Sony. How are you doing today, Jimmy? I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Though, though, with an intro like that, I always feel like, like, why don't we just stop the podcast here? And then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you place to end it. <laughs> Let's end it on a high note. <laughs> there we go. Thanks so much for joining. Now, well, Jimmy, I really appreciate you being on here because I love the the uh, the, the micro intricacy that you built and developed throughout this whole thing. And what I loved about this is I was listening to a lot of your interviews, and I had the opportunity uh, to to read this book. But I really want to talk a little bit about the the PayPal mafia and specifically about the culture because. You have talked numerously about how this was like a synergistic relationship with so many amazing people that then developed other massive multi-billion dollar companies. And that's why uh, the, the PayPal mafia is, is where the, the, kind of the terminology came from. But I want to ask a little bit specifically about the culture, the synergy with these lion entrepreneurs, these amazing top leaders and how they had that amazing culture. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question and it's a great way to kick it off because it's actually funny enough it's kind of how I kick off the whole book right like um, I had all these friends it was really funny when I was writing the book they were like oh you you've got to start with with Elon you've got to start with like a crazy story about Elon or you've got to start with Peter Thiel or and the place I start is actually the idea of what's called like or what um, this one music producer called a senius so it's not like a genius but a senius like scene meets genius you know senius. And it's it's really amazing if you look at the constellation of people who worked at PayPal from 1998 to 2002, their total personal net worth exceeds the GDP of New Zealand. They have built successful business after successful business. They've been in public office. They've written, like, like let's just give you, one of them wrote a book. It became a number one New York Times bestseller. 
one of them, a, a group of them got together to make a movie. It got nominated for two Golden Globes, right? Like they're doing Rockets. And one of them also went out after his time at PayPal and built a charter school network, right? They are leaders at Apple and like have, have are leaders at Google. And they have also built some of the iconic companies of our time. And my whole quest, this whole crazy journey I went on to find all these people and interview them was motivated by exactly your question. What was the culture? What was in the water? Why is it that you know, Yelp, the creator of Yelp came out of this group, the, the co-founders of LinkedIn, you know, like or the co-founder of LinkedIn, there, you know, all of these people. And I would say it's a very big question and I'll slice off like some pieces of it and then we should double click where we need to, right? Um, I, I think one thing that's very interesting, it's kind of at the back of the book, I because I asked them about this. I said, look, what was in the water? And one of them said in a different interview, but I found a great, it was a great quote. He said, this is Max Lebchin, who later went on to found Slide and now uh, is the CEO and founder of a firm. He said, you know, we would interview these people and they would come in and they would tell us, so this is going to be my last job ever. I like don't ever want to work for anybody ever again. And like, that was like one of the first things they would say in an interview is I don't ever want to work for anybody ever again which is a kind of interesting way to kick off an interview if you're trying to get a job, right? But he said, we actually really appreciated that because he said some of the best employees are employees who see this as their last time ever working for anyone else. And then they're going to go off and start their own thing. Because what it did was it introduced this kind of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial kind of belief system into the company right from the jump. I'll give you an example of that. There's this moment in the book that's really funny where the company decides it needs to do some cost cutting. So one of the places it decides to cut costs is they're not going to do free vending machine snacks anymore. They're, you're going to have to pay for your vending machine stuff, right? And this like is sent like anger coursing throughout the office. And so this guy, his name is George Ishii, says, well, well, screw that. If we have to pay for our vending machine snacks anyway, then we're just going to get stuff we want. So he built inside of his desk like a store and he would buy like really good snacks. And then you could use your corporate, he'd be, he got a scanner, like a barcode scanner, hooked it up to his computer and you could pay for the snacks at his little store with your corporate badge. So it basically just like cut the vending machine out of business. And I saw so much in that like small act of rebellion, right? This junior level employee is mad about the free vending machine snacks going away. So he builds what's called the Ishi Shao Ten, the, the Ishi store, his name was George Ishi. And to me, that was like a perfect anecdote to illustrate that everybody had this quality. And I have to tell you, even in interviewing them, you would feel it. You would feel like these people get agitated about problems that they see in the world, and then they go out and try to solve them. That's one component of your answer, of the answer to the question of what was in the culture. So let me ask you this, because I always found this interesting when you have um, and, you know, you have some very high caliber leaders uh, that have very opinionated that are obviously very ambitious, like you said, entrepreneurs. And what I found so interesting is that they were able to put aside their egos or whatever, right, to be able to build the PayPal, you know, ma massive. And there's a lot that goes into it. we're going to be diving in here shortly. But let me ask you. Because you, you mentioned here, and I thought this was really interesting, how like the relationship between Peter Thiel and Max. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that because it wasn't this, this even though they're very powerful in their own right and they're very smart in their own right, they were able to really have a synergistic relationship. And Peter Thiel, he was able to kind of adjust. I want you to just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's one of the parts of the story that's most interesting because if you can imagine at one time in one room, 
Reed Hoffman, the future founder of LinkedIn and now serves on the board of Microsoft, David Sachs, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and Max Levchin are, and that's just five of them. There's like 200 others that are equally impressive, all in one room trying to solve problems. And it's not exactly harmonious, <laughs> right? Like it's, there's a lot of shouting and a lot of fighting. I would offer a couple of thoughts. The first is, um, and I'll answer the, the the first part of your question first and then get to the Peter Elon, uh, the Peter Max relationship because it's really interesting. You know, I I had a couple of people play the following thing back to me, which is they said, you know, people want their workplaces to feel nice. They want everybody to be nice to each other. And one of them said to me, that's complete nonsense. You really don't want that. What you want is like people to be kind of like challenging and testing each other where the disagreements are about the ideas and about the products and about the services and about the business, not about the individual. And so what was interesting was that a lot of these very deep disagreements, I mean, there were like two palace coups during this story, crazy things happened. It was genuinely focused on strategy and on services and on products, not on like, I don't like Joe and Joe's really mean and whatever. So there was a kind of healthy disagreement, a healthy, I, the way I wrote it in the book is disharmony produced discovery. It was actually in people clashing with each other all the time that they were able to produce these really amazing kind of like, like really truly breakthrough technologies. Let's say you don't believe any of that because of the PayPal story or because you don't like Elon or whatever. There's this really amazing documentary that I saw recently. I'd recommend everybody watch it. It's actually just one interview. It's this lost interview with Steve Jobs. He was interviewed for some television program and somebody lost the tape. And then years later, they found the tape after he died. And you can find it online. It's like Steve Jobs, the lost interview. And it's kind of just after he's been uh, removed at Apple. And it, he's kind of in his like wilderness period before he returns to Apple again. At the sort of three quarters of the way in, he describes this story he had because somebody says to him, hey, nobody likes working with you at Apple. <laughs> like they say you're really mean. And they say that like you push them really hard. And he actually just cops to the point. He says, yes, like we are, we're a very hard place to work. And he said, part of it is like A players want to work with A players. And that's the kind of intensity it takes. The other thing, he, he tells this great story. He says, you know, when I was a kid, there was this neighbor I did some lawn work for. And he had this uh, like, a, like a rolling bin, like a bin you could roll. And he said, I want to show you something. He, he took these rocks. He said, give me those rocks. So he gave him the, Steve Jobs gave him the rocks. He put the rocks in the rolling bin. And he, and he said, we're going to roll this and I'm going to keep rolling it. And when you show up tomorrow, the rocks are going to be polished. And these are just like ordinary rocks. There's nothing special about them. And Steve Jobs didn't believe him. So, you know, Steve Jobs shows up the next day and the rolling bin's been rolling this whole time. And the neighbor opens up the bin and they pull out the rocks and they are polished and they are smooth. And Steve Jobs thought of that as a metaphor for how he would run Apple, which is I want these rocks like colliding against each other and hitting against each other because out of that friction will become something, will come something polished and smooth. Was it always perfect? No. Was it the place, the best place to work? Was it ever going to be on any one of those lists of like the hundred best? No, absolutely not. PayPal was, it, it was chaos, but it did bring out people's best work. And, and that is a really interesting tension. Like when you, when you have these big personalities, how do you not sand them off? How do you not say, oh, we have to like, we have to dial it down. How do you actually dial it up and let people get in just really rabid contests with each other so they can produce the best work possible? Um, the, the interesting thing is that in some ways, that is not true of the relationship between Peter and Max. What Peter and Max have is healthy respect. 
Um, you know, Peter is a chess grandmaster, very successful as a young person, as a student, graduated, you know, top of his class in high school, then went to Stanford, Stanford Law, and was out in Silicon Valley kind of looking for people to invest in. It was rare for him to meet somebody like Max Levchin, who had a photographic memory and could do math just as fast as Peter Thiel could. In the same way, it was really rare for Max to meet somebody like Peter who could solve puzzles the way he could. In fact, several of the first meetings they had were just puzzle solving. They would just hang out and solve like random math puzzles together, right? And I don't know about you and your friends, but I don't get together with my friends and solve math problems for fun. That's not like a thing we do, right? And so it was, it was they, they found this kind of chemistry with one another. And then they also found this healthy respect. And it's interesting, the respect carries through to this day. When you listen to Peter talk about Max, he'll say, you know, he's the hardest working, the smartest and the nicest entrepreneur, right? That, the one of, among them that he knows. And Max will say, Peter is like a 14 year old kid. He just gets so excited about an idea and then he wants to see where that idea can go. And so what you have in that situation is a little different from the friction I described earlier. But the interesting thing about the level of respect that they have is it allows the best ideas at PayPal to rise and it lets them make really good decisions together. Max knew, for example, that Peter was going to know the business side of things better than he did. Peter knew that Max was going to be the best coder in the room, most likely. And so there is this kind of healthy respect that helps the company grow. See, and I find this so interesting. And I appreciate that analogy as well with Steve Jobs, what you mentioned. So what you're saying is you critique the idea, right? Because obviously, the, like you just mentioned, the best ideas rise. But you don't critique or destroy the person or the personality, right? You're not having that conversation. So I'm curious, Jimmy, with these you know, high caliber individuals that, like you mentioned, we're going to be talking about the intensity as well here shortly uh, of these individuals and the way they deploy and they're just very active, uh, whether it's recruiting, whether it's hiring a hot top talent or just you know, deploying a lot of you know, activity in, in whatever they do. How does humility come into play? And what I mean by this is, are they humble where, just like you said, there's this respect, like, hey, Elon knows, you know, Peter's job and Peter knows Elon's, Elon's job and, and, and same thing with Ken and, and Max, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the line. And they realize, hey, we're not going to overstep because they're really good at X, Y, Z. Because I do know that both of these companies earlier on, I, I don't know if people know this or not, but those those companies were, you know, uh, 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 acquired together into making PayPal, et cetera. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about the humility piece into this and you know that, that personality trait that some of these individuals have that facilitated this, this, this intensity and this growth in a respectful yeah. way. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm trying to think of specific moments where it would have come up. Here's what I would say. I would offer two, two thoughts. The first is um, when I was interviewing, so I did like, uh, God, how many interviews? A lot. Let's just say it was a lot of interviews, like it was into the hundreds. The number escapes me at the moment. But I did a lot of interviews <clears throat> and I tried to find every person that worked at the company between 1998 and 2002. That was my goal. And a lot of people ended up saying yes to speaking to me. The interesting thing about <clears throat> these interviews compared to other things I've done is I would interview somebody, let's say Joe Smith. And I would say, Joe Smith, you know, who should I make sure I talk to next? Like, who's the person to talk to? And they'd say, oh, you've really got to talk to Susie. She's a genius. And then I would talk to Susie. And Susie would say, oh, you really got to talk to Brad. He's a genius. And every person, it was this weird thing of every person would point to somebody else and say, oh, my God, they blow my mind. Oh, man, you can't even believe the ideas they have, right? But rarely was it like everybody was saying Elon or everybody was saying Peter Thiel or everybody was saying Max Levchin. It was actually this interesting team where there was so much like high wattage in the room 
that everybody was pointing to somebody else and saying, I'm humbled by how good they are at what they do. Like that is just crazy, right? I'll give you an example. Max Levchin is like one of the most respected engineers in Silicon Valley. He has built several multi-billion dollar companies. He's had a successful acquisition, exit, IPO, the whole thing. He's like hit the bingo board, right? When I interviewed him, he said to me, oh man, Russ Simmons, who later became the co-founder of Yelp, but was employee number four at PayPal, said, man, you really have to talk to Russ. Russ is like a, uh, Russ is a next level genius. And, and this is like Max Levchin saying that. He, and he, would, he said to me, he's like, yeah, any problem you give to Russ, he can solve in half the time it takes like for anybody else to do. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if you are saying that, like exactly how epic is Russ, you know? And, and so I think part of the humility in the moments it happened is because when you're in the presence of just true greatness or genius or success, you know, humility is an appropriate response. Like you're kind of like, wow, you're so good at this. How could I not be humbled, right? Like it's like standing in front of like the Mona Lisa or something and saying like, how can I not be humbled by how great this is? The other thing that happened is this. A lot of, a lot of what happened is that you would have situations where there was a recognized expert in something or like somebody had done work that was so good that it just had like, uh, like people sort of like, we're like, okay, they've got this. A great example here is fraud. So PayPal's success is really not in creating the PayPal that you and I know, which is like, oh, I can email money to you, right? <clears throat> if I wanted to send $5 to you, I could do that right now. The real success is making sure that when I send $5 to you, that me, Jimmy, that I am Jimmy, that I am who I say I am, and that I'm sending it to you, Christian, and not some like Russian hacker, right? That solution set, the basket of things that helps to fight fraud is PayPal's great breakthrough innovation. That was universally recognized to come from Max and the engineering team and the fraud fighting team. And so when you had a situation like that and there was tension, you know, it wasn't like someone else could come in and say, oh, I know how to do this better. Or, oh, I've had 25 years in banking. I'm going to do it better. There was a kind of intellectual humility to say, look, those guys have been working on this for a long time. They, you know, at the startup, like they've got it figured out. I would say it's nobody would rank that team high on humility every day. <laughs> Like, just to be clear, you do have very big personalities in the room. And also remember, for everybody listening, like all of these people at the time are in their 20s, right? And how many of us are like truly humble in our 20s? We're almost, we almost all believe we can do no wrong. We're going to take over the world. You know, you know, humility comes through difficulty. It comes through pain. And at the time, very few of them experience the kind of difficulty and setbacks that you experience in the middle of your career or in your life, by the way. You lose somebody you're close to, suddenly like you're a little more tentative. You're a little bit more accepting of people's foibles or flaws or your own flaws. So I, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't overplay the idea that there's humility there, but I will say that part of what happens when is when you're in a room and you respect the intellect of the other people in the room, it is easy to at least gut check your own assumptions about things. I noticed this again and again, like someone would say, you know, David Sachs has a really strong instinct about the product. So if you came to him with a product idea, you better have thought it out. Like you better really have run it through its paces because he was going to tear it apart. But that was exactly why the PayPal product got better and so many other email payment services didn't get better. I hope that made sense. I mean, you know, some of this I'm just it, sort of reflecting on now. No, it definitely did, man. And it's so funny that you're mentioning that because it's just more of this, this high caliber, um, you know, 
focus in that one area where they have that respect because it's like yeah that mutual understanding like hey you know you're really dialed in on that uh, like you mentioned with max as well as david now i want to talk a little bit about because you mentioned something i, I want to talk about this because they have this brutal honesty of a culture right where and i found this very interesting when you said this it says like we we, we tend to surround ourselves with people that make us feel comfortable. But your whole thing was productively uncomfortable, where it allows us to be in this situation, like you mentioned, uh, it's just a different way of saying it, but it's brutally honest. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that and how that was uh, sprinkled throughout the, the synergy. Uh, because even you, you talked to, we, we talked to some of these big names, but you also talked to a lot of the employees that were at the beginning stages and they may have not produced whatever, but they still went out there and were part of the, that ecosystem at the beginning. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about kind of that holistic. Yeah. And, and to be clear, you know, I don't, I don't know that they were consciously doing this. So this is what I mean. So I'm, I'm this guy, I come, I come to this story 20 years later and I'm interviewing all these people. And what I picked up on was this idea that part of what made this startup work better than its competitors faster and created a culture of entrepreneurship was the notion that if I tell you, Christian, I'm like, I don't like this thing about what you just did, that weirdly, that discomfort is a good thing and is encouraged, right? That you want, somebody gave me this great example. They said, you know what, PayPal it was, it was actually like a badge of honor if you were a junior employee and you called out a super senior employee for something they did wrong. Like people would pat you on the back, right? As opposed to, oh, like that's like not something we do here. Or like that's not how you don't, don't go over your manager or supervisor, right? It was actually like email threads were places that would get into these vicious contests. And I have a few of those email threads in the book. The, the, the thing that is interesting is if we take a step back, in our lives, we have all these people, right? Maybe they're family or friends. And a lot of them we just spend time with because they're, they're really nice and we enjoy their company. I think that all of us, I mean, I hope all of us have at least a few friends where they actually make us a little uncomfortable, right? They may be the person that you call when you're making a big decision because you know they're not going to stroke your ego. They're not going to say, oh, Christian, you're the best at everything. It's all going to go well, right? What you're calling them, hopefully, because they're the person that says, yo, you got this completely wrong. And like, you're about to make a big mistake and somebody needs to tell you or else this thing is going to go off the cliff. I found that that level of honesty is a really hard thing to do within a company, right? How many of us like want to come in and call our coworkers out on everything? Nobody does. Nobody wants to make other people feel uncomfortable that way. But if you look at the series of things that made PayPal great, part of what made that company culture great was that people felt a willingness, indeed like an urgency about saying, this is wrong and I have a better solution and here's the better solution and we need to do this. And it didn't matter if you joined three days ago, it didn't matter if you joined three years ago. I extended that in the, the kind of epilogue. I wrote a little note to my daughter at the very end because my sense is that in like, that's not just a good lesson for how to build companies, which is like have some people around who are actually willing to call it like it is. It's also a good lesson in life. Like how many of the people in your life are just there kind of like feeding you grapes and fanning you and making you feel amazing. And how many of them are there saying, you know, you could be doing this better or you need to do this differently or you need to do more of this, right? That's a very interesting place. Like to think about the friends you have that make you uncomfortable, but you're still friends. That's a very cool way to think about like, how am I organizing my life? How am I getting better? And I think it applies just as well to people as companies. 
So just on a personal note, uh, because I heard another interview where you surround yourself and you're that for other people and other people are that for you as well. Um, just in your personal life, how do you facilitate that to ensure that one, is there a criteria that, hey, this person has to be better at X, Y, Z so that I have the respect or is that mutual understanding or also that you know that they're not planning to hurt you. So if you're authentic and vulnerable and sharing, and then there's that, that trust and relationship, just help me understand that a little bit uh, for our audience, make just on a personal note. And then obviously we'll, we'll kind of walk back. Yeah. Back. No. And I, and I wish I had some sort of user guide, right? Like I, <laughs> I think, I think part of it, here's what I would say. Um, part of it is I'm lucky. I just, I got real, I lucked into friends whose default posture is to do this for their friends and to do this for other people. Um, you know, they're just very good at being like being able to one of my friends, Grace, um, who's actually working on her first book now. She has this thing because she calls it the hug and the slap. <laughs> she's like, oh, I'll always, I'll always have a hug and a slap. Um, but and she's doing it, she's saying that in jest, but it's not too far from the truth, which is it's a rare person who can do that. What I would say is number one, um, if I think about how to engineer it in your life, it's a great question. It's a reason I'm actually like struggling with a little. The first is a lot of my friends happen to be kind of creative entrepreneurs or, you know, creatives, or they run their own businesses, or they are otherwise like engaged in some kind of self-improvement, right? You find that people like that kind of have this gene, right? Like, like they're just sort of always either tracking themselves or trying to improve, or they're trying to try something. And then they can't help but like evangelize about it. <laughs> like they'll they'll try, I don't know, yoga. And they're like, oh man, you got to do yoga. It's amazing. Here are the 15 ways it's going to improve your life, right? So I was trying to sort of like force things on you. So I would say like friends who are in the business of their own self-improvement, that's generally a pretty good place to look for like, hey, I want you to help me here. The second thing I think is I, I and I, again, this is not a weird thing, but it, it's a, it's um, I have friends where the friendships aren't kind of uh they're 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 the relationships are really around like creating big things together so i work with a lot of my friends i like do projects with friends i help other friends on projects and so there's a kind of creative energy there and then the last thing is i'm not shy about asking for advice i mean i think that's a, one of the big things right is like we feel like we have to go to therapists for advice or coaches both of which are great by the way not knocking either of those i think those are important but if you, some of the people who know you best, who can probably be most honest with you are people you've been in these long relationships with. And I would say, I'm not shy about just asking friends, like, hey, what do you think I should do here, right? Um, I think you can create communities like this. It's not actually, I'm not some special person in this regard. Like you can create communities, I'm sure you have it, where like you just know that person's gonna say, here's how you can do more. Let me push you. Here's how you can do it's almost it's almost a kind of parenting, you know, like but but with the side dish of friendship where it's like, oh, this person can actually like make you be better than you were. But I will say, if you think about your friends in that way, probably the first thing it would lead you to do is to recognize those friends who don't do that, right? Where the friendship is not bad if it's just around like hanging out, watching the game, but you, all of us know which of our friends are actually making us better people. 
I appreciate us just going down that avenue a little bit because I find that a very interesting topic that we could probably, you know, step on there for a second. But I want to carry on a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the speed of execution with this culture, right? And and I found this so interesting because, like uh, you, you mentioned, in, in one of the things, Elon Musk, like recruiting capability, where you know that you know. It was literally that night he called someone, boom, okay, we're going to have a cup of coffee, wonderful. They stayed up to four o'clock in the morning. And then like the next day, like seven o'clock in the morning, hey, we're going to go ahead and give you, uh, you know, an offer, right? And, and I found that so interesting because it's this, it's this massive speed. And they, they get, now that's just one example, but I want to kind of integrate it where that became like the culture itself, a synergistic you know, cadence uh, within the actual company itself, uh, you know, just sprinkle throughout all the levels. Just talk a little bit about the, the speed of execution that PayPal had and that cadence. And that's the reason also why they were able to dominate. Yeah. And it, and by the way, it shows you how little things change in some ways, because if there's this great interview that Elon gave recently, not an interview, sorry, somebody at The Verge, some Twitter employees wrote down or recorded everything that Elon said in his first meeting with them at Twitter. And there's this paragraph that I think everybody should go read. And it's about maniacal urgency. And it's this, it's this really short meditation. And you know, believe like people can be on whatever side they want on about Elon and about his acquisition of Twitter, whatever your opinion might be. This paragraph on maniacal urgency is still really interesting to read because I bet at the end of it, you will like want to get up out of your seat a little faster the next day. What he says is, I believe deeply in a maniacal sense of urgency around just doing things. He's talking in that moment, the Twitter moment, about the idea that they could lure Twitter creators over to, to or your, lure YouTube creators over to Twitter by paying them 10% more. And what he says is like, just go, just build it. Like, let's go. I want like hardcore. Now, there's a million reasons why maybe that's like a good thing, a bad thing. I don't know because I'm not in the business. But what I will say is that maniacal urgency was true at PayPal too. And it is this feeling that like they just have to keep pushing faster and further. There's a couple of reasons that I'm sure your entrepreneur listeners will appreciate. One of the biggest is like PayPal is built during the middle of the dot-com bubble bursting. So they just didn't have any money. If you didn't have urgency, you were going to die, right? And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, you're dealing with that all the time. You're not a part of a big established business. You can't just like handle a down quarter. You know, if things go sideways, your business goes under. PayPal, that was very, very, very true of PayPal. I had this person, a very, not, not a very, but a relatively junior level employee in QA uh, who said to me, you know, at PayPal, you had this weird feeling that you could be the bottleneck for the whole business. That like the entire thing was the weight of the world was on your shoulders. And what that did is it created this sense that everything had to be updated faster. Everything just had to happen, that you had to work seven days a week, that you had to work nights, that you had to work weekends. But here's the interesting thing. There were a lot of other competitors in PayPal's domain at that time. One of the places that PayPal took off was as a payment services provider on eBay. It became the biggest payment services provider on eBay between, 19, between 2000 and 2003. Interestingly, what I heard from customers when I interviewed some of the customers was PayPal would do releases like, an, like a day after they saw a complaint, right? Like, like it was like almost automatic. Like somebody would notice something, they'd see it on a message board, they'd fix it the following day and customers were blown away. They were like, whoa, like I can't believe somebody like saw what I wrote and then responded to it in that way. So is the maniacal urgency a recipe for burnout? Probably. And there were a lot of people I spoke to who did end up burning out because of this experience. Like it's not an easy experience. At the same time, it is part of what made the company successful. They moved faster than their competitors. 
I interviewed somebody who worked at eBay and he said to me, you know, a lot of our employees were like going home by like six or six thirty, and they were just wheeling dinner into PayPal at that point. And I thought that was such like a great little way of encapsulating the whole thing. But I think that the maniacal urgency has is still true in the lives of many of these people. You feel it when you're with them. They have to get the next thing done. They have to get to inbox zero. They have to cross that next item off the to do list. Is that the is that a way to live your life as though you're living in a Zen garden? Maybe no. But is it a way to make yourself do more in a shorter amount of time with less resources? Yeah. Let me ask you this in, the, in this regard, because in today's culture, and I really appreciate you mentioning this, because I'm a big believer in that. However, though, I think sometimes there's miscon, uh, miscon, uh, miscommunication in regards to this topic a little bit, where we think, oh, we just got to be busy just for the sake of being busy, right? And what, what I found so interesting about some of these top leaders, they were this maniacal urgency in, in speed of execution, but executing on things that were moving the money moving the needle further, right? Whether that's PayPal, whether that's their, 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 their obviously big projects that every single one of them are working on currently. So let me ask you, Jimmy, was there like, um, was there like a, a, a kind of a conversation or a dialogue or whatever during the PayPal era where they were able to identify, okay, hey, what is the, the big, the big high leverage activities, right? Like you said, getting into eBay. Okay. Now we're integrated with them that exploded tremendously and helped them also understanding dominating the fraud aspect. Like you mentioned here, what were other bigger things that they saw that like, okay, Hey, not only this, this urgency, this speed of execution, but executing on the right things are the largest activity producing uh, results. Yeah, no, it's hundred percent. Right. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not advocating people do this. You know, I'm not advocating that you live your life like in a sleeping bag at Twitter headquarters. <laughs> like that's like like to each his own. If you want to do that, feel free. If you don't have to. Um, let me offer one thought and then dive into the, the specific question. One of the advantages that a startup has over a big company is its speed of execution. You're not going to win on scale. You're not going to win on your your balance sheet. You're not going to win on like potentially even corporate partnerships, but you can win by moving fast. It is a classic David versus Goliath story. And I think that this was conscious. They knew in that moment, their company could move more quickly than eBay. And that was an advantage. There weren't many advantages. That was an advantage. To your specific question, they also managed to move fast on the right things. And this is where like, there were all these balancing acts, right? I'll give you an example. One balancing act, you could have Every user in the world, if you threw open the gates, had no checks against fraud, didn't verify anybody's identity, just let them all on to PayPal, do whatever you'd like. You'd have a hundred, I mean, you'd, you'd keep growing like crazy. At the same time, if you had super tight fraud controls and you were super rigorous, you wouldn't grow. You'd, you'd, you'd like, so your growth would slow down to like a snail's pace. So there's a balance there of knowing what the lever is right? To like, okay, we're a little slow on growth. Let's like, uh, like adjust a little, like let's go in the direction of growth. At the beginning, the company knew if we don't have a critical mass of users, we're toast, fraud or no, fraud or not. So they definitely had to kind of open the floodgates. They let a lot of people onto the platform who shouldn't have been there. Later, they calibrated and adjusted. I think part of that was they had basically weekly management meetings on the weekends where they were looking at the key numbers and then driving against those. Uh, that's kind of one thing is like actually studying the metrics that matter. The second is, and I heard this from a few people, there were small teams as opposed to big teams. So 
like David Sachs and Elon Musk, one of the things that happens when Elon becomes CEO of the company is they sort of put a big kibosh on huge meetings with like 20 people. Like there's this one moment where David Sachs is looking into a room because there's too many people congregating in the room. He's like glaring at all of them. Like, what are you doing? You know, because one of the things that, that was discovered very early in the days of computer science, even in the 1970s and 1980s, is that sometimes a bigger team of coders doesn't actually fix the problem. It just creates more communication channels. And so what you want is a small enough team to do the work, but not make it so big that it's like emails that matter instead of code and products, right? So like small teams became another way that they dealt with, like, how do you figure out the right things? How do you move more quickly? And then I would also say there was a great deal. I heard this again and again of empowerment. People feel like people felt like they actually owned the problem, whatever it was. Like if somebody was a fraud analyst, they were like, felt real ownership of it. I think some of that came from on high. I think some of it is just the culture of like a startup in the 90s and like it's so exciting. But I think that's something really powerful. If people feel ownership over their particular component of the work, they'll move faster to make it a reality. And I heard this, you know, direct from the people who work there. This is such an interesting topic. I appreciate you mentioning that a little bit. And I want to talk, um, when you were building this out, the journey of, of you know, interviewing so many, I'm curious, when you were going through, I think we all have presuppositions a little bit, and, and when we start kind of this journey a little bit. And I want to ask you, Jimmy, what was like one founder or one interview or one person that, you know, kind of caught you off guard, maybe with their story, maybe with their journey, maybe with information that was provided later on. You're like, oh, I didn't know this all occurred. What was that for you? Because I would imagine it's probably a lot of things, a lot of information. But I want to ask, like, what was that one person, one founder or one individual in this story and this journey that was like, oh, this is this is interesting. And what what lesson did you take away from that? Yeah. Man, we could do just an entire practice on this because there's so many. I mean, I interviewed so many different kinds of people. Um, I'll offer a few thoughts. The first is, <clears throat> and this is really important today, I think, more important than ever. I can't tell you the number of times I interviewed somebody. And the first thing they said to me is, you know, nobody's ever asked me about PayPal before. And like some of these, like they're, these are not like the, these are not the bold face names, not the famous people, because those people get asked all the time. But it struck me how many people never really got credit for their work at PayPal. They might've been employee three or four or five or six, like really early. And nobody took the time to ask them about their story. I find that interesting because a lot of the narratives that are written about companies are written about the person who's at the very top, who's the CEO, right? And he or she like they get all the coverage, they get all the attention, but you forget there's like a team of hundreds of people actually doing the work and that's where the interesting stuff is. So I think one of the interesting things for me was learning the stories of people who were left out of all the headlines was actually probably the coolest part of the whole thing. Was like, I learned what where the actual innovation was done, where the actual gains were made, right? That was super interesting. I would say, you know, you can't do a book like this or interview somebody like Elon without... Um, kind of recognizing like how amazing his life story is, right? Um, again, whatever people may feel of him, he, ca he came to the country with almost nothing and has built himself uh, quite a life in business. But I would say also people forget that the four years that I'm writing about him, he loses an infant child, he almost dies twice, and he gets kicked out of the company he created. So this is not somebody that has had just like lucky win after lucky win, or, you know, he's like stumbled into, no, I mean, his success is pretty hard won. And, and I found that what was interesting is how honest he was. Like he and I were supposed to talk for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. We spent four and a half hours, our first chat, just like riffing on different topics. 
because he has a lot to say and he's really thought a lot about his own style of leadership and about what startups mean and about what entrepreneurship is. So I would say his level of like honesty really surprised me because what happens with a lot of these people is when you get to that level of fame and success, you kind of, you have to sand yourself down because you never know when something you say gets misinterpreted or you get in trouble. So everybody's always like, like they have people around them. They have like, like some VP of comms who's like telling me, can't say that, can't say that. But none of that. This was Elon and I in his living room, like on couches and he was just talking and there was nobody else in the room. Right. And that was great. A guy was, it was so refreshingly honest in some ways. The last thing I would say is, um, you know, you, you, you do forget, I think, that like Silicon Valley, because of the way it's portrayed today and because of how much wealth is at the center of it, you really do forget that, that, these, are, that these are fundamentally in many cases, not all cases, but many cases, really excited nerds. Like it's, it's a nerdy problem solving, puzzle solving culture. And those are the people who, when they were kids, were really good at math or chess. And they're still, by the way, really good at math and chess. And they just love solving problems. They might be wealthier today than they were when they started out in their lives. But the interesting thing about interacting with them was this almost childish enthusiasm or childlike, not childish, childlike enthusiasm about solving problems. I thought that because they were who they were, like you're like sitting in front of, I don't know, Peter Deal, and you would think like, oh, you know, now you're like a billionaire and you're going to be a different person. But actually, like they're fundamentally the same sort of person. They like diving into some problem, figuring it out, trying some things and moving on. And, and I found, I was surprised. I did, I thought that being this successful in business might lead to some other kind of person or make, make them seem a certain way. But actually I buried a secret code in the middle of the book. And the first person to try to tack it and solve it was Max Levchin because he loves code. Like he loves codes. He loves like puzzle solving and case cracking and stuff. And so this was like, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is who you are. You're not somebody who set out to be some Titan, you know, you really like solving problems. If you see a problem in the world, you're trying to solve it. This is so interesting. And, and that's what one of my questions is like after the exit, right, of PayPal, where they've been able to develop themselves, right? And, and definitely at your young 20s, et cetera, every, every single one of them were able to get holistic with themselves, et cetera. But then they went out there and accomplished their own right successes in so many different avenues. Like you, like you mentioned, uh, a movie, uh, you know, obviously YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, uh, you got obviously, you know, SpaceX, et cetera, and, and rocket ships, et cetera. And, you know, obviously Peter Thiel and his investing career. So my question is, you know, like you were just kind of talking a bit about, Jimmy, is what were some of those personality traits that they kept that holistic why they kind of facilitate that, that that grew into themselves during the PayPal era that obviously now they're able to take into their to their next journey to the next large projects. Yeah, I would I would say that um one of the biggest was so so remember that the context here, right? So PayPal is created kind of 1990 late 1998-1999 is when these two separate companies, Elon's company x.com and Peter Thiel and Max Levchin's company Confinity, that's when they're created. You you have to then track the fact that their next 4 years pretty much the entire bottom falls out on the internet, right? The Nasdaq loses something like 80% of its value in the year 2000, right? 
the dot-com bubble bursts. Amazon stock traded, I think, at like $7 a share at some point. I mean, it's crazy, right? Um, they survived the dot-com bubble bursting, and they go public in 2002. And then they get acquired by eBay. So what you have is a group of people who look at the internet and don't see like dot bomb failures or hype. They see, hey, you know, this is possible. Like we can create a company that does something and then take it public and it does really well. Like that's something we can do and we know how to do. And I think that's one of the keys coming out of this is that you had a group of people who were fundamentally optimistic about their own ability and about what the internet was going to do to business. That's really important. Like not everybody had that, that optimism. There's this famous Barron's um, cover, like a cover of Barron's from that period. And it literally says like dot bomb and it's about Amazon, right? Um, and you would think like, we all laugh about it today because we know what Amazon is today. But at the time, people didn't know if Amazon was going to survive. They didn't know it was going to expand beyond book selling. They didn't know any of this. And so this group of people emerged fundamentally optimistic. I would say the other thing is they know right away who the people are in their lives that they could hire, that they could work with, that they could turn to for investment. So one of the first things that happens coming out of the gate is that many of these people invest in each other's successes. They hire each other. They work with each other. I can't tell you how, in some ways, once I got over some of the initial skepticism about the project, they were all in reasonably good touch with each other. So I just ask one person for an intro to the next person for an intro to the next person. <laughs> and, you know, 200 plus people later, I had a book. But they, I had this person describe it to me this way. He said, you know, it's kind of amazing. He was reflecting after our interview. He said, he is like, whoa, like my entire life, all my friends, all my business relationships, I can trace totally back to PayPal. And so it's a little bit of a circular answer to your question about personality, but I would say one of the gifts of this experience was just knowing the people who were part of the experience, right? And then that way they could help each other out, grow companies together. The, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, they, they had this quality that I think is really important for people that I kind of took away from the whole project, which is there's a sort of relentless self-improvement, right? So you, so let, let, let's, let's take a step back. You're the head of PayPal. You just went public. You're worth several million dollars. You could just give it up. You could just hang it up, retire, like sit on a beach and do nothing, right? If that's what you wanted. I met very few people in this story who took the money that they made from PayPal and just like spent the rest of their days hanging out, right? The reason we're even talking about them today is because they did the opposite. They went off and continued to build more things. In fact, there's this great moment where Max Levchin um, gives an interview after he's done with PayPal. This is a few years later. He said, yeah, like I had this year after PayPal, where I like went on the beach and like I just like didn't do much of anything. And he looks at the interviewer and goes, it was the most miserable year of my life. <laughs> and the interviewer goes, well, why? That sounds amazing. He says, no, because all my friends were building companies, right? My friend Jeremy was building Yelp. My friend Elon was building SpaceX. My friend Peter was building Founders Fund, right? All my friends were building companies. And I was like on a beach relaxing. He's like, it was, it was miserable. It was terrible. And so I think there is there's this quality of not just accepting that the last great thing you did is the, the, the end, that it's the final, that it's the finish. And I, I think that's a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes you have a win or you, you know, you do a great and you're just like, Oh, that was so awesome. And it's, it is, it takes more energy the next time to get up and say, no, I want to do it again. Let me see if I can do it again. So I take that as one of the things that 
is one of the qualities that maybe unthinkingly they took out of this and continue to do for the rest of their lives. This is so interesting. It, it, it gravitates directly to where I want to go here on regarding the evolution of the transformation once they decide, right? And you said this a little bit in regards to, I think a lot of our listeners are in that situation where they're looking to exit, right? At some point, they're building their business and they're having that exit strategy or some of them are in that transition. And there needs to be kind of a transformation, evolution of your own self, your own identity, et cetera, because, you know, going from you know, PayPal to banking to, you know, revolutionizing that whole system to then all of a sudden, you know, Yelp and, and LinkedIn and, you know, obviously movies and, uh, you know, all sorts of different uh, other, other trajectories. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the next step, what some of these founders did that helped them. And I, I know you kind of already, um, you know, leaned into it, obviously that self-improvement, right? That relentless uh, self-improvement, but is there anything else that these founders really helped, you know, transform themselves or you know evolve themselves to identify that uh, next step yeah it's a it's a really good question i would say um okay i'll offer a few thoughts the first is one of the things that i noticed about this group that is unique is they're voracious readers um not everybody because not everybody in a group of whatever 300 people is gonna be the same right but I found that they were stunningly widely read. Um, Musk himself, very widely read. Max Levchin, like, and not just like nonfiction books, by the way, novels too. Like I, I would find culture, cultural and literary references when I was doing interviews with them that you would not be able to make if you like weren't widely read. And then I would talk to them about books and they were super like up to speed on books, right? Um, there's this really funny moment that I interviewed this employee. I was asking him sort of a question like what you just asked me, like what made them different? And he said, let me tell you a story. He's like, one time I and my, I think wife, our partner, he's like, we went out with Max and his partner and we were out to like to dinner and he came and he had a book and it was like this thick physics book. And I think it was about Richard Feynman. But the guy says to me when I'm interviewing him, he says, he says, so my wife looks at Max and says, like, what's that? Like, what's your book? And Max looks at her and goes, oh, this is my physicist of the moment. Um, <laughs> and so later he goes to the bathroom and the wife looks over to the guy I'm interviewing and says, who has a physicist of the moment? <laughs> right. But what I would say is like there was a kind of ethic about reading really widely that always left them open to like new discoveries and ideas. That's one thing. The second and I, I find this to be very important and a little underrated. Um, Silicon Valley can seem closed off, except that this group of people has a track record of taking meetings with almost anybody. Not almost anybody, that's an exaggeration, but let me explain what I mean. T Peter Thiel is famous for meeting with people from like all different walks of life, all different age groups. He'll meet with young, old, you know, American, international. Um, Reed Hoffman, when I had talked to him about this, Reed said, you know, one of the things I like to ask my friends is, who is the craziest person that you know? And can I meet them? And he said, because they might be crazy. Like they might genuinely be crazy or they could be a genius and somebody else could have labeled them as crazy and that's unfair. And I want to figure out what they're working on so I can help them. I found like that type of attitude is a little different from what you might hear from the CEO of Goldman Sachs or the CEO of JP Morgan, right? So that person is not going to say that necessarily. But what I found with this group of people was there was almost like a, a, a belief that 
the next person they meet with would be Mark Zuckerberg, right? Or the next person they meet with would be Vitalik, the founder of Ethereum, right? That actually like an openness even to having the meeting, particularly if you're in the position to help somebody achieve their dreams, which a lot of your listeners, the things that they will be able to do now coming out of an exit will be able to help other people achieve their ambitions, right? They'll be investors. Obviously, they're going to do well, but they'll be able to help them achieve their dreams. I think that begins with knowing that like, you don't always like know who you're meeting with. Like you don't always know what their potential is, right? And so I found that that was really interesting. It even extended to me. They didn't know me from Adam. I wasn't famous. I'm not Walter Isaacson, right? But each at each time, what they would do is they would say, oh, you should really meet with, and then they would send the intro right away. As busy as they were, they were very, very generous with intros. And I feel like there's some lesson there about how one of the ways to figure out your next steps is just to talk to a lot of people. I mean, take every meeting you can and ask really good questions. That's kind of thing two. Thing three is um, I never got the sense that it was, it was you know, they, somebody asked Max Levchin this question. They said, so why do you build companies? You know, and he, he had like a, a really charming answer. He just said, I, I don't know. This is just what I do. I just build companies. I don't know what else, I don't know any other thing to do in the world. This is really like what I like to do. So, you know, almost like a get off my case type of answer. It's charming, but a little bit of like, I have no idea. Right. And, and I think there is something to, even to that as people are thinking about next steps and thinking about what they would do, which is like, don't think that like once you've built one business, you have all, you know, in reality, you have all the tools you would ever need to do it again in a different field or a different space. The same, you've probably refined your instincts about talent management, about people, about hiring, about money, about how to go and achieve product market fit. All of those things, you're better now than you were when you got started, right? So what is the downside to just doing it again? Um, I think there was this almost, it wasn't all, it wasn't like they all like sat down and mapped out a plan. Like Reed Hoffman was like, I'm going to do this, you know, this, and then we're going to do this. It was more just like, this is what I know how to do. And I happen to be very good at it. So I'm going to continue to get better at it. Right. Um, and, and I, and that, you know, that to me, it's like, there's something about that, but like, maybe it doesn't require so much thinking that it's sort of just like, you're good at this thing. Keep doing this thing well right? In different ways. And obviously like in different, you know, seasons of your life. Um, but it seems to me that that was like a key. I would also argue that one of the cool things was watching a number of the alumni pursue other interests besides entrepreneurship. So David Sachs in the immediate aftermath of, of PayPal goes to LA and becomes a movie producer. He creates a production company. They did a movie called uh, Thank You for Smoking, um, which was the one that was nominated for two Golden Globes. Elon was like an executive co-producer. Max Levchin was a co-producer. Peter Thiel was a co-producer. I think that just meant that they were investors. I don't really know. I didn't follow this, this thread too far. But he was willing to, to essentially leave Silicon Valley go to Los Angeles and start this whole new life and then come back to Silicon Valley later, right? And so I think there's probably something in that too. Like be open to the idea that the next phase of your life might be completely different, that you might go and like start a business that's in a completely different domain. And then maybe you'll come back to whatever it is you were doing before if it doesn't work out. Uh, and like you were saying, you know, earlier on, it's like that, that childlike uh, curiosity, that childlike, just like that, 
uh, that enjoy the journey of, of really solving that problem, whatever that problem is, and putting that on top of mind. Uh, Jimmy, I really just appreciate our time together, man. I just, I know we could talk and unpack this at such a deep level. There's so many other questions I want to ask, but Jimmy, I really appreciate just, first of all, you going out there and doing the hard work, interviewing, unpacking this, building this out, uh, and, and for, for individuals like myself and also our audience uh, to be able to understand that, that the, the, the mafia empire, right? The, the, the PayPal mafia, right? If you will. And really just uh, that culture talking about that, also talking about the speed of execution and unpacking that strategy, as well as just you know, that, that amazing synergy and energy and, and brutal honesty that we were just talking about, right? Productivity, a productive, uh, uncomfortable, right? Productively uncomfortable, I believe is what your terminology is. Uh, Jimmy, I really appreciate that. For those that want to obviously be part of what you got going on, learn a little bit more what your, your ecosystem, as well as maybe you know, even uh, uh, invest in the book. How do they do that, my man? Yeah, so the book is called The Founders. Um, and it's available, you know, everywhere books are sold, but you're probably going to buy it on Amazon, which is great because um, uh, it's easy. And uh, I would say I'm on Twitter. I'm G- at Jimmy A. Sony. I'm online at jimmysony.com. I'm not the most active person. I'm a, Obviously, I write books. Like a lot of book time is just time alone, figuring these things out. Um, but I love to hear from readers. And so if, if people are listening, well, there's an audiobook version too, if you prefer that. There's a Kindle version. Um, but I love to hear from people and see what their reactions are and kind of hear about how this tracks or doesn't track with, you know, individual entrepreneurs or people building businesses or people within a business who are having these experiences. 100%. Guys, those links will be in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing. And I would highly recommend just, uh, you know, Jimmy has been featured in numerous different publications and a lot of different other articles and podcasts and views. Make sure I put all those links down there. I'll put his LinkedIn account and then as well as his uh, his website. So make sure you guys go out there and purchase uh, purchase that, invest into that, unpack that. Because again, uh, the, the the amazing insight that he's able to unpack at a very deep level is, is remarkable. Um, and, and again, Jimmy, I really appreciate your time being on here. I always love to ask my guests before I let you go. Is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with our audience? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I would... The, the one thing that I would offer that I think, you know, you do really well and, and everybody I think could stand to do more of is um, follow your curiosity, right? Like, like I, I, you're in the business with this podcast of just like asking people questions about things, right? And sort of engaging your own natural curiosity. And it's great. And it's so authentic too. Like you're so authentic in the way you ask people questions and the way you draw them out and the things you pick up. Um I, I see it in my daughter who is seven. Like she's not really afraid to ask any question that she has in her head. And she doesn't, she's not afraid of looking stupid. She's not afraid of looking silly. And somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we like surgically remove some of that. Right. Um, and so I would say that my, the only word of wisdom I have is probably something that's like guided all of the book projects I've done is just following my curiosity and seeing how far I can take it before somebody says no. And sometimes nobody says no. And then you end up writing a book about PayPal, um, which is sort of how this one turned out. That is some great wisdom, man. I love your energy, man. And I really again appreciate you being on here. Guys, that is the author of The Founder, my friend, Jimmy Sony. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. 
Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would Bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to ChristianDEvans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at Christian.Evans at BeUncommonIfYouCan.com. That's Christian.Evans at BeUncommonIfYouCan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations guys that is journey with christian davis podcast and until next time remember be uncommon if you can cheers